0: Welcome to the January 2022 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, it is our first show of the new year, and we're going to begin by looking at an issue in the news here locally last fall. Two Bay Area fire departments are facing lawsuits alleging discrimination based on race and sexual orientation. Now, it's truly hard to believe that still in 2022, homophobia is a problem, even in major cities, liberal cities like San Francisco. Tonight, we have two guests, including Kevin Mallison, who was the first out gay firefighter in the United States. He's written a new book about his experience titled Alarm in the Firehouse. Kevin will be joined by Ed Senatori, the founder of the International EMS and Firefighters Pride Alliance. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio news for this Sunday, January 23rd, 2022. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of January 23, 2022. A Catholic church in Poland wants a court to determine if the victim of a priest's alleged sexual abuse, who was a 12-year-old boy at the time it started, was gay and therefore, quote, took pleasure in the intimate relationship, end quote. The lawsuit brought by Janusz Sismic against the diocese in Poland says that he was abused by a priest for years in 1984 when he was an altar boy. A news website in Poland published parts of the church's response to the lawsuit, which included a request for, quote, evidence from an expert sexologist to determine the client's sexual preferences, in particular determination of the claimant's sexual orientation, end quote. The church also wants to be allowed to question the victim about, quote, showing pleasure in maintaining an intimate relationship with Jan W., that was how the accused priest was referenced in the lawsuit, and, quote, if the victim derived benefits from the relationship, including material benefits, end quote. The church says it, quote, denies the relationship was based on enslavement or incapacitation. On the contrary, it was voluntary and based on mutual benefits, end quote. The church's internal court already found the priest guilty of sexually abusing the victim in 2017. The church banned the priest from conducting priestly ministry and hearing confessions for just five years. The victim's lawsuit is asking for $3 million Polish dollars, that's about 755000 in U.S. dollars, in damages from the church. In 2021, the Vatican disciplined the diocese in Poland for neglect in responding to the priest's alleged sexual abuse following a two-year investigation that found that the victim told church leaders about it twice, but it still took years for the diocese to do anything about the abusive priest. And here in the U.S. in Denver, Colorado, a 30-year-old transgender man was attacked a week ago Friday in Denver while waiting for a train. And he couldn't even get home after the beating because the Uber driver who picked him up kicked him out of the car once he discovered the victim was transgender. At about 10.30 p.m., Sire Klenke was on his way home after spending time at a gay bar with friends. While at the train station, someone Clinky described as male presenting and about five foot eight with a heavy and athletic build approached him and began repeatedly punching him in the side of the head while yelling anti-LGBTQ slurs. The attacker was much larger than Clinky, who is only 52 and about 125 pounds. By rolling on his back and pushing away from the attacker with his feet, Klinky was able to escape. Unfortunately, the horrific night didn't end there. After he escaped, Klenke decided to call for an Uber to get a safer ride home. But once he got in the vehicle and described to the driver what happened, the Uber driver got out of the car, opened the door, and told Klenke to get out. Uber issued a statement saying, quote, What Clinky reported is heartbreaking and something no one should ever have to experience. Uber does not tolerate discrimination of any kind, and we will take appropriate action, end quote. And here in the Bay Area, the San Francisco AIDS Foundation Magnet Health Services canceled services as of January 15th, apparently because it ran out of adequate supplies. The announcement posted on social media said, quote, due to COVID-19 surge related supply chain issues, we do not have sufficient laboratory supplies to meet the current demand for routine services, end quote. It went on to say, starting on January 15th, we will be postponing all PrEP follow-up and routine sexual health appointments at the Magnet Center for the rest of the month. The services canceled include PrEP follow-up appointments, most PrEP appointments for current PrEP clients, and routine STI and HIV testing. Magnet said they are not able to do any HIV or STI testing for the rest of the month. Magnet will continue to provide PrEP appointments for new PrEP clients and STI testing and treatment if a client has symptoms or if they have been in contact with someone who has been diagnosed with an STI. They are also able to provide interim HIV treatment, emergency post-exposure prophylaxis for HIV exposures, and transgender care services. Now, for those listeners here in the North Bay, free and anonymous HIV testing is still available locally at Face to Face in Santa Rosa, but by appointment only. You can also drop by the office during office hours and pick up an in-home HIV testing kit. For more information or to learn how to make an appointment, go to the website at f2f.org. If you have a local LGBTQ news story, announcement, or an event you'd like to share with our listeners in this segment, Tell us about it by going to our website at OutBeatNews.com. Just click the Submit Event button at the top of the page. For OutBeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Tonight we're talking with two guests about homophobia in the fire service. Ed Sanatoria is back. He's a retired member of the San Francisco Fire Department and founder of the International EMS and Fire Pride Alliance. And Kevin Mallison is here. He is the first out gay professional firefighter in the nation, and he has a new memoir out titled Alarm in the Firehouse. Kevin and Ed, welcome to the show.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Greg.
0: Good to have you back, Ed. And Kevin, it's going to be great to get to know you and to hear more about this uh, great book you've written. But before we get to that book, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your story, where you grew up, and a little bit about your coming
1: out. Uh, I grew up outside of New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, My parents were immigrants from England, and so we were first-generation kids. Um, I went to high school in West Haven, Connecticut, which is right next door. And I think I realized, uh, well, I realized I was gay at 16, but I knew something was different around the time I was 12. I just, I was a naive kid. I didn't know what it was. (laughs) And then around 16, the only reason I realized it is because the kids in my geometry class were calling my teacher a faggot. And I didn't know what that meant. And I said, so why do you say that? And they started talking about, well, he likes guys and probably has never been with a woman. And I thought, oh, my God, is that what a faggot is? And then someone said something about homosexual. And I thought, what's the difference between those? (laughs) I was naive. But all within an hour's time, I suddenly realized, oh, my God, that's who I am. Uh, I was kind of unusual in, in those days. That was the uh, the early 70s, because then in my senior year in high school, I came out to a number of kids um, and they didn't believe me. My hair was very long. They assumed I was into drugs and alcohol and just kind of different. Um, and I wasn't. I was a scholarship straight-A student, <laughs> um, but they knew me, so they thought, well, you can't be gay,
0: mm-hmm. and I had never
1: been with a man by that point, so I didn't really know much else to, to say other than, yes, I am.
0: Right, and what- uh, So
1: just, I've always been out.
0: So just in terms of context, give us a sense of the year that this all took place, because things have certainly changed. I
1: graduated changed. in 73, so in late 1972, I came out to some of my classmates and a number of my teachers.
0: Okay. Well, that was really unusual then.
1: It was very unusual, and I did have a very close friend whose name I won't mention, but um, I, on a phone call, asked him if he would go to the prom, and mm. nobody did that in those days. Wow. Um, but, you know, I would have done it if he had said yes, and he mm. very nicely said, I don't think I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, so I, I think I was fairly comfortable with myself right from the very beginning.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so once I left high school, uh, I was always out. It mm-hmm. was never a, a case of being in the closet.
0: So what about your family? Again, in that time, families you know, didn't have as much information, exposure, support.
1: They didn't, and I didn't have their support. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had two older brothers who were uh, quite awful. Um, quite mean and uh, difficult, very homophobic. Um, And my father as well. Uh, Mother was a little bit less so, but uh, distant. It was, uh, she knew I was scared. My parents both had figured it out. Um, And so I I had a very difficult time through high school, but it was also complicated by a, a strange thing is I was a straight A student and got a scholarship to go on to college And my parents didn't want me to do it. And it's because they grew up in England in working class families and nobody ever went to university. Mm. So there was this conflict over my being an American kid who thought I should better myself and parents that that fought that. So I was not going to work with my father on vehicles, uh, repairing automobiles like my brothers did. So I graduated high school on a Wednesday evening. My parents didn't go to the graduation. Oh, wow. Um, and I was on a Greyhound bus at 6.30 the next morning. Wow. Leaving town. Yeah, I left town and uh, never went back.
0: So that takes it.
1: I that, was 17 uh, years old.
0: That had to have just taken an incredible amount of courage. I can't even imagine that.
1: It did. I think I've always had a, um, an optimistic attitude that things will always work out and that's been through my whole life. But I think that was the uh, the feeling at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. I had been writing letters back and forth with a gay man who lived in upstate New York. And uh, and I said, you know, I need to leave. And can I move there? And he said, well, you can, but you will have to work. You will have to, you know, take care of yourself. And um, And I was very lucky. Here was this man twice my age who Forced me to get a job, open a bank account and start saving money for college. Mm. Um, could have easily taken advantage of me and did not.
0: Nice.
1: Um, and I always appreciated that, that he would he would do that.
0: Yeah. So
1: I talk a bit about that in the book to give people some context of, of what that was like. Um, but it, it gave me a good start for my adult life then to be able to care for myself and, and always had an optimistic attitude that things will work out even if they don't always.
0: Right. So w- was the fire service always something that was on your mind?
1: I can't say always on my mind, but it, several times when I was a young man, I thought, gee, I'd love to be a fireman. Um, I, I always liked the idea that they would respond to emergency situations. You know, as people say they run into the fire when everyone else is running out. Um, that didn't scare me. I, I thought there was great um, honor in that. And so I always admired them for their ability to do that. And I thought, you know, I think I could do that job. I think that would be fascinating.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was, uh, I will say that once I joined the fire service, I learned how much more complex firefighting was than my romantic feelings about sure. it ahead of time. You sure. know, there's a lot of science to it. And well, it turns out I love science. So that that made it even more
0: enjoyable for me. Yeah, my dad was a firefighter, a thirty-year uh-huh. career firefighter, and and uh, I don't know that I was ever really super interested in in it. Though I did work for a year as a, a fire dispatcher for our local town wow. department, and yep. you know, sort of explored that. But he got me interested in law enforcement, and that's, you know, I, I fell in love with that for some of the same reasons that you talked about. Um, Well,
1: it was funny that after I joined the fire department, my sister, who lives back in Connecticut, um, reminded me that my grandfather back in England was the chief of the fire department. mm -hmm. And I had somehow completely forgotten that. Um, And I talk about it in the book because I have pictures of my grandparents. And he ran a a fire department in Yorkshire, England, Mm -hmm. during World War II. Now, eventually London was bombed badly and the men of the fire departments around the country were called to London to fight fires. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And my grandmother became the fire chief of the town. (laughs) So I have photos of both my grandfather and my grandmother in their fire chief uniforms and I completely forgotten that story from my childhood.
0: It's in the so genes, I guess isn't? Was
1: somewhere in my DNA. Yeah, yeah,
0: no, yeah. I think, I think there's got to be something to that. Um, Ed, so when you hear Kevin's story, you've been on the show before, but for our listeners who didn't listen that night or don't know you, give me a little context about how your experience compares.
2: Um, well, I grew up as you know in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, always wanted to be a firefighter, uh, was drawn to it at a very young age. I remember as far back as five, uh, being fascinated by the firefighters and the work that they did. Uh, my parents even have photographs of me, um, at one of the local fire stations during open house week where, you know, I was on the fire engine and like most young you know mm-hmm. children do, they like to take pictures on the fire apparatus or with the firefighters. And, uh, you could I don't know, even even when I look at those pictures now, it's like you you can see there was a, more of a fascination with fire apparatus and the job that they did. And I think it was one of the only times my parents would comment that I would shut up, you know, and not talk and be very attentive when the firefighters spoke and what they were talking about and was really drawn towards the profession. Um obviously at five I didn't know um that I was gay and didn't know that I was i had those those feelings um i didn't realize that until i was around 14 but 14 14 was a very pivotal year for me um it was when i uh, first connected with my first boyfriend at 14. Um, i was in the explorer program at 14.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, harvey milk and george Moscone were shot and killed mm-hmm. in san francisco when i was 14. Um, a lot happened in my 14th year. Um, It was uh, an interesting time at the time of discovery, finding out a little bit more about who I was and kind of opened my eyes up a little bit more to kind of some of the the abuse I was feeling at home. Um, I actually connected with the firefighters at my local fire station um, a little bit more probably than most teenagers would at uh, my age. And I think the reason why is because the suffer the physical abuse I was suffering at home, I started kind of connecting with firefighters. With them, I saw them as not only heroes, but I saw them as father figures. I saw them as grounded individuals with their own families. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
2: some of the firefighters I became very close with met their own families, mm-hmm. um, their own sons and daughters. So that's... Uh, Kind of where I
0: got started. Yeah, And so the story is so interesting because it parallels mine almost to the detail, right? So I think the experience for our generation moving into this profession is somewhat similar. I, I was very much aware I was gay. I discovered that law enforcement was a super homophobic profession the first hour that I walked in the door of the police department. So for you, did, Kevin, let's start with you. Did you have a sense when you first started, you, you knew who you were, then you were interested in the fire service and made a decision to go into it. Did you know it was such a homophobic place?
1: I had no idea. Um, in fact, I don't think it even occurred to me consciously that it was going to be an all-male environment. Mm. <laughs> and, and you're thinking, you know, I was a 25-year-old gay man by this point living in Key West, Wouldn't I have thought of that? No, I was just thinking about firefighting itself. I had done some reading before I applied and thought, oh, I'm excited by this. This is going to be interesting. Um, But I did not know what the firehouse environment was like. And I was going in to be a professional firefighter. So that meant we were going to live in the firehouse for 24 hours at a time and in shifts. And it had not occurred to me how people become a family when you're doing that that you eat together, you work together, you sleep in the, we were sleeping in large uh, bunk rooms at that time. So uh, it was open to all eight beds. Um, So I didn't realize what that environment was like and why it was so unique that um, to me, each shift felt like a family. Some were very dysfunctional families, but they were families. (laughs) And some were more supportive families, but I was on a very dysfunctional one for a couple of years. So no, I, I had very little idea of what the homophobia would be like. And to that point, I had had several jobs as a young man. Um, some uh, such as working in a butcher shop. And uh, shortly before I joined the fire department, I had been working on moving very large mobile homes up and down the Keys. So, you know, driving an 18-wheeler vehicle and setting up mobile homes is very construction-oriented sort of job. And in each of those jobs, I never went in and said, Hi, I'm gay. My name's Kevin. <laughs> I right. just went in and said, Hi, I'm Kevin. After working for days or a couple of weeks, people get to know me and say, So, you know, you have a girlfriend, you married? And I'd say, No, I have a partner. They go, Oh, yeah, Joe. He works for the cable company. And and that was sort of a very nonchalant, easy way of coming out because by this time they knew my work ethic. They knew of who I was and that I I loved humor and working hard Um, and they were there some strange responses sure but they got over it fairly quickly and so no job that I'd ever had was really a homophobic environment until I got to the fire department
0: Mm -hmm. now
1: I run into a lot of homophobia in just in life but that was the first time in a work site that uh, I actually felt that mm-hmm. sort of assault. So and uh, it, it was striking. And so, then, of course, you know, part of the book that I really try to talk about is, why do I think it's so homophobic? And, uh, and what promotes that?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, it would, I would have never even considered it. Because when I thought, think about firefighters and I think about law enforcement officers, I think about professionals. Right. People that are there, they're caring, compassionate, helpful people. And yet the way they treat one another is horrible sometimes. Just horrible. It's just horrible. So, Ed, as an explorer, you obviously had a lot of exposure to the fire station environment. Um, Similar situation that Kevin described uh, certainly back then. But, you know, like Key West, San Francisco is a pretty uh, progressive liberal diverse uh, environment did you see homophobia right away when you were an explorer
2: oh yeah um, it, it's an all-male um, dominated profession um, still is there are more men in the firefighting service than there are women mm-hmm. um, you, you you see it almost immediately yes they're professionals yes they you know they do a, a, an amazing job. You know, fighting fires and, and life saving, but there's also the the joking that goes on uh, in the fire station. You know, there were pictures often, you know, passed around of adult magazines, and mm-hmm. in the adult magazines, you know, they would make comments about the men and women, but they would also make comments about, you know, I bet you he's, bet you he's queer, you know, I bet you he's gay. Um, you know, you do something around the fire station that was less than masculine. You know, what are you, queer? Are you a faggot? You know, those those words were, were often thrown around. Um, I think I heard some things, you know, in my 14, 15, and 16-year-old years that I probably shouldn't be hearing. Um, and they were coming out of father figures, people that I really respected and looked up to. So,
0: so yeah. How did you get past that? I mean, how did you, you knew who you were. You knew what the environment was, yet you made the decision to go into the profession anyway. How did you get past that?
2: Well, the, the philosophy when you're younger, I mean, your, your drive to want to be a firefighter pretty much blocks out a lot of the bad that you see. You, you look at the good and you want to be part of that good, um, the good work that they do. You, you, you keep your mouth shut. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you don't hear these things. That, you know, you hear them and you dismiss them. And you concentrate on the goal of, of becoming a firefighter of doing what you always wanted right. to do. You know, it takes its toll. I remember, uh, vividly, I remember some of the things that I heard, some of the things that I, that I saw, um, some of it probably will never go away. Yeah. Um,
0: so Kevin, you, you moved to New York. Uh, how did you get to Key West?
1: Well, uh, the long short of it is I lived in upstate York for a couple of years and started college. Okay. And during the third year of at the University of Buffalo, um, I met a boyfriend and he said, you know, nice to meet you, but I'm leaving town in three months. I'm moving down to Florida. And he did. Three months later, he moved to Key West. But by that time, we'd actually gotten quite close. And I thought, how stupid. I should never have let him go. <laughs> So uh, during the winter break, I went with uh, friends in a Volkswagen van, as you did back in those days, <laughs> all the way down to Key West, Florida. And uh, reuniting with Joe, uh, within a few days, he said, why don't you just stay? And so I called back to the university, count my uh, roommates, and I said, could you pack up my things and send them? I'm staying. Wow. And so I, I, you know, I didn't finish college at that point. Um, just decided I'd stay in Key West. And then that uh, stayed there for 13 years.
0: Wow. So, so
1: I had uh, settled into Key West uh, when I was about 22.
0: Okay. And w- what was the environment like? Was it a big gay community then?
1: It was really burgeoning as a gay community at that point. Um, Key West, when I got there in, in late 1978, 79, was, uh, was still a small town. During the summer, you could walk down the middle of Duval Street, the main street, and mm-hmm. not even encounter a car. It was so small. But then over the next five years, just it changed dramatically, all right? Lots of gay men and lesbians moving into town, buying businesses, buying homes. Um, in fact, they started running for city office. So if anyone's ever been to Key West, it's a small island. It's very contained. It's one mile by three, essentially. And so the locals, um, referred to as conks, the, the conks were threatened. They thought their way of life was going to completely change now. Here we're coming, all these outsiders were coming in. And part of the problem was, yes, they were and lesbian, but there were also all these other outsiders coming in with lots of money. Mm-hmm. So it was a threatening environment for the local people, the conks. The fire department was virtually entirely conch there were very few people who would be considered non Um, the, the three black men on the department at the time were Bahamian descent. And okay. so they were often not referred to as conks because <laughs> they were black. Um, it was just absurd. But I think when people say to me, wow, that must have been so easy to be a firefighter in Key West because it was a big gay community. Actually, just the opposite is when I joined the department, um, they saw that as an invasion. You know, one of the city commissioners was now an openly gay man, and now there was a fireman who was an openly gay man and an outsider. And to make things worse, I was vegetarian. (laughs) You know, I was like, oh, how many strikes could you have against you at any one time? Um, But it was threatening to them. Uh, the, the city commissioner, who eventually became the first openly gay mayor in the United States, elected mayor, Richard Hyman, um, he was our city commissioner at the time. And one of his main goals was to get rid of nepotism in the city government. Mm. And so the fact that I got a job in the fire department was striking because up to that point, you got a job because your uncle was one of the captains your you know, brother was one of the lieutenants. And so they, they all finagled a way to get you in past the civil service exam and all that. When I took the civil service exam, there were about 20 or so of us in the room. Um, and they made the mistake in a sense of telling me that I got the highest score of anybody.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That became important because the chief, when he went to pick new recruits, had to pick three men or we were all men. So uh, he could have jumped over me twice, but he couldn't jump over me the third time, according to civil service rules. So he had to interview me. Uh, And then what ended up happening is we came out to the fire station, three of us to do the physical agility test, the running, the Mm -hmm. climbing, the carrying hose and everything. I passed and the other two did not, but they were conks. So, of course, they passed the exam and got hired. But then the chief hired me as well. Nice. Um, and so it, it um, now there was an outsider and an openly gay man in the department.
0: Okay. So you applied. In, you went into the yeah. process being out and open.
1: Well, what happened is they don't ask you if you're gay. Right. I just... So the way it happened is... I. I went and took the civil service exam. They tell you your your score right away. And so a week later, I'm interviewing and doing the physical agility exam. Did all well on that. And the chief said, all right, we'll see you next week. Show up on Monday. Here's where to get your uniform, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yay, that was great. When I walked in within the first five minutes on my first day of of work, I was attacked for being a faggot. And Mm. I thought... How the heck did they know that? Well, the reason I I found out that when taking the civil service exam, firemen went into the room to see if their uncle was signing up, if their cousin was or whoever it was they wanted. And they asked, who's that guy? I was the only one in the room that they didn't recognize because everybody else was a conk. Wow. And so they told the fireman, oh, he lives out on this island called Bay Point. So they called one of the firemen who lives on the island I was on. And he claimed not to know me. (laughs) He he disavowed any knowledge of me. So they called the chief's ex-wife who lived on the island. I mean, that's how far they went. And she says, yeah, he's a faggot. He's building a house right down the street from me with another guy. So that's how they found out I was gay before I ever even showed up for the physical agility exam. Wow.
0: And, you know, sadly, uh, that's kind of back room, back door conversation, back door research, whatever you want to call it, still goes on today.
1: Oh, I'm sure it does. In uh, law
0: Absolutely. enforcement as well. And, and then the, the rumoring and the, the attacks begin before the person even shows up. Yep. Which is horrible.
1: Yeah, so the whole department knew who I was. And when I asked the uh, another officer years later when I was in the department, so why did the chief hire me? I mean, that because it turned out to be such a, a hassle to have me in the department. And he hired me because he knew I wouldn't last the day.
0: <laughs> really?
1: And here it is, four years later, and I'm still in the department. But the chief thought for sure that the men would harass me so badly they would never come back after the first day and he did indeed assign me to the worst group of firefighters in the department there were nine nine shifts and i absolutely had the worst group uh, of men who all disliked each other and so the the 24-hour shift was constant Struggle between everybody to um, to tease each other, to undermine each other, to um, and they thought he thought for sure I would quit, and I stayed on that shift for two years, and finally he transferred me to the best shift in the department.
0: Nice, (laughs) but so how and why? I mean, for most people, I think that they would have walked from that. Yep. How did you survive?
1: I survived mainly because I had a very strong desire to be a fireman. And after going to a few fires, I was absolutely convinced that this is what I should be doing. Mm -hmm. But also because I'd already suffered um, episodes of homophobia, right? So um, I'm a bit older than you guys. The first time I went to a gay bar was 1973. It was raided by the police in Utica, New York. The first night I go into a gay bar, I'm 17 years old. I'm not 18 yet. <laughs> um, that completely changed me. I came out of that. Uh, I was not arrested, but the the guy I was living with was. Um, and the only reason they arrest them is to put their names in the newspaper right. on Monday morning saying these men were arrested in a homosexual bar.
0: Right.
1: So... That completely made me an activist. I decided I will never put up with this. I will fight this. This is not right. Um, so when it started to happen in the fire department, I thought I am not going to let me run. Let them run me out of here. Um, I kept thinking to myself, I have every right to be in this position, and and I agree with what Ed said before, um, and and you you started out with it, Greg. The fire service is a service. It is something we do for our community. And it should be something, whether it's law enforcement or firefighting, that we as the community are able to service our community. Mm-hmm. So I certainly don't see it as a straight white male's job that we're trying to sneak into. And I always had that thought. I have every right to be here. And I. Uh, Firefighting. The the more fires I went to, the better I got at it, and the more I was convinced that that's where I should stay.
0: I know in law enforcement, I've heard from a lot of, particularly gay male officers, that they fear that their colleagues despise them so much that they're not going to show up, you know, to cover them, to help them. Did you Absolutely. ever feel that you were put in a position of being at risk?
1: Absolutely. Um, In fact, I knew very well of two experiences where the fireman purposely tried to get me hurt in the fire. Hmm. And uh, when I was doing interviews with some of my colleagues uh, two years ago before uh, the book was completed, I heard of yet a third episode that I wasn't aware of. But these firemen that liked me a lot went to the chief and said, that should never happen again. Kevin should never be put in danger. But there was a time at a fire when I was climbing a ladder and I was the the lead. I was often the lead who was taking the the nozzle up and and suddenly I'm 20 feet above the ground and I get hit by a stream of water, which is you can imagine from a fire hose is enough to really knock you off. Um, I didn't fall, which was good, but it was one of the other teams who thought it would be funny to hit Kevin with the fire hose, that high above the ground. Um, And in another situation, I was the lead man going into a a burning house. um, uh, Quite a a big fire. Mm -hmm. And just as I'm going in, the other two who are supposed to be backing me up start to walk back. And one of the captains from the other station saw them and said, what the hell are you doing? And they laughed and they said, that's Kevin. And wow! Much to my surprise, he reported them and and told them to leave the scene and replace them.
0: Wow!
1: Um, so there were times when I know darn well that they were trying to hurt me.
0: Wow! Uh, wow! Because <laughs> they
1: had tried everything else. They had tried um, abuse and threats and threatening my partner and other kinds of things that they thought surely I would just quit and leave, and I didn't.
0: Ed, for you, again going now we're in San Francisco. Did you see any of the same sorts of things?
2: Yeah, Um, there were there were incidents. Working on the EMS side, when I worked on the ambulance, Um, we had situations where you would you would work with somebody who was known to everyone that they were they were gay, they were lesbian. I had a transgender. Um, or it was the same thing. Um, if you know little snickers and smirks about you know. I Hope you guys don't need help because nobody's coming to help you.
1: Uh-huh.
2: You know you, we know that you're gay. We know that that person's transgender. Um, I I heard that constantly. You know maybe we might take a little bit longer to get there. Uh-huh. You know to help you out. Um, you know during the during the aids and the hiv crisis you know somebody you know don't get don't get accidentally stuck you know with that needle you know you know people were making references about sticking other people with needles during the aids mm-hmm. crisis i mean there were it, it just really it still today the, the unprofessionalism in in such a professional organization always boggled me the way that people were harassed
0: now, w- refresh my memory. Were you out in the fire no. service?
2: No. For the, for the first nine years, no. Okay. Um, I kept to myself. Um, it was one of those things, you know, Kevin even knows it. And I'm sure it was the same thing with law enforcement. It's, you know, your first couple of years, it's, you know, you keep your mouth shut. Right. You know, you keep your eyes and your ears open. You learn from the senior people. You don't make waves. You know, you don't cause trouble. So you absorb a lot of the things that you hear and you see. Um, I didn't start coming out until I was in my ninth year, and so well established. That, that's when I was I was thirty um, when I started coming out, and that I'm sure I told you that story before. You know, at thirty, I decided I was tired, you right. know, hiding who I was. So I started bringing people from my circle closer together, and some of them were firefighters, mm-hmm. EMTs, and paramedics, and I started telling them about my sexuality. Um, kind of really threw myself into the bar scene. Started meeting people. Um, it was it was an interesting time. It was four. I thought fourteen was turbulent. Thirty was turbulent. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you're a teenager um, all over again.
2: Yeah, it was. I mean, you're you know, for the lack of a better term, you're a baby gay. You know, you're mm-hmm. you're coming out. Right. You know, at that time. You know, it's. I mean, I remember parking my car you know, in the Castro and being afraid that somebody might see it. I mean, I used to park blocks away. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually sometimes parked neighborhoods away and would take the uh, streetcar uh, into the Castro because I didn't want anybody to see my car, you know. Oh, hey, you know, there's that car. You know, what's he doing down here?
0: Yeah. Well, you're a step ahead of me because I wouldn't go at all because I was so afraid that somebody would see me there.
2: It was terrifying. Yeah. Um, and and it, even, you know, with law enforcement, you know, they're out on the streets more than, you know, the firefighters are. It's like, if, you know, if you're a gay police officer who hasn't come out yet and you're going to the Castro, mm-hmm. you know, to, to meet people or to have a good time, you know, what's the likelihood of you bumping into somebody from SFPD, you know, that knows somebody that you know that knows somebody right. you know.
1: Yeah, and that situation was, was very much so in Key West because we're a small island. And, uh, and one of the great supporters I had, from early on was one of my lieutenants was a black Bahamian, and uh the way he he sort of introduced himself to me was great he was transferred to my shift one day and it was always stressful to have somebody new come because oh god now i have to deal with another jerk you know um he comes and sits next to me outside the firehouse and starts to talk to me which i was astounded oh my god why would he even talk to me you know i'm the faggot and uh and he started out by saying well you know kevin he says uh i i came in this department 13 years ago i was the second black man and he was the third black man in all of south florida Mm -hmm. to be a professional firefighter but he said i was the second black man and he said you know 13 years ago, they were whispering and yelling, there's a black man in the firehouse. There's a black man in the firehouse. He said, but, you know, it's been 13 years. And he says, did you hear what they were saying today when I came in? And I said, no, because I didn't hear anything. He says, there's a black man in the firehouse. And he said, it doesn't go away easily. He said, I hate to tell you, but they're going to know there's a faggot here for a long, long time. And he was laughing. And I knew immediately he was being supportive. Right. And one of his comments was, um, Kevin, you're not the only gay man in this department. And I opened my eyes and he says, you're the only one that's out and not married to a woman. <laughs> and he, so my lieutenant's day job, aside from being a firefighter on his days off, was running his own private taxi. Mm. He saw where everybody was at all times. He said, I can tell you where so-and-so goes on a Saturday afternoon. I can tell you where somebody's car was on a certain night. And and that became very apparent that the small town atmosphere, just like the Castro is that small little town kind of neighborhood, um, which put those closeted firemen at great danger. And so they had to be very, very careful about uh, what was going on in their life because they did not want that to become an issue for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And,
1: uh, and I did, uh, I, uh, one of the things I talked about in the book was going to visit a, a friend of mine whose partner was sick with AIDS at the time. And he was the manager of a bed and breakfast there in Key West, uh, a gay bed and breakfast. And as we're sitting there chatting about medicines and options and all this stuff, um, a guest comes out of his room and right behind him is one of the firemen who'd spent the night with him. <laughs> and the look in his face when he saw me sitting there was just precious.
0: Oh, I bet.
1: Um, and he, he just recently passed away. Mm. And I think what's really funny, it's been you know 35 years since I've been in that department three different firefighters sent me his obituary and said, Kevin, I think you might want to know that he passed away. So they all knew. Right. They, it, he just was not open. Right. Um, so it's, it's tough. I think when you're closeted and, and this, this day and age, you know, we have no internet in those days. We didn't have texting and That's cell right. phones. So, It's got to be even much more dangerous these days because people can communicate so much faster. They can take a picture of you coming out of the bar now. Right. And text it to somebody.
0: And they do. But yeah,
1: (laughs) I I was keenly aware that everything I did outside the fire department was going to easily make it back into the fire department by the time I got there the next day.
0: Yeah. Well, the book is called alarm in the firehouse and uh, you talk about being the first openly gay Firefighter in America. How did you discover that?
1: That's a great question. <laughs> so back in oh, I guess it had to have been um, eighty three or four, maybe eighty four. I got a call from New York City, and it was a uh, TV um, uh, personality for what they called gay TV in in downtown oh, yeah. Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. And he wanted, he'd heard that I was the firefighter that was out. And and he wanted to do an interview with me and Charlie Cochran, who had just recently started the Gay Officers Action League. Um, So I was flown to New York from Key West and had this great interview, loved meeting Charlie Cochran. That was just great for both of us, I think. Um, And... It was Charlie Cochran who said, "You know, I've never met another out firefighter who's in uh, professional." And the, the point that the professional firefighter is important because there may have been um, openly gay volunteer firemen, but it's not the same environment as you have in a professional right. department where you're living in the firehouse. Um, so he was the first one who made me think, "Really, I'm I'm the first one he's heard of." That's kind of strange. And then as the, the next couple of years went on, uh, I realized that nowhere did I run into other out firefighters anywhere in any of the inv- events that I had gone to, sporting events and firefighter Olympics and those sorts of things. Eventually, um, I have a husband of 29 years, and one day he said to me, hey, you know, the Wikipedia has this list of first gay, you know, whatever. Uh, mayor, the first gay senator or whatever, um, and on that was the first openly gay professional firefighter, is, uh, a man named Dallas Drake out of Minnesota. And I looked at it, and it said uh, 1989, and I thought, well, wait a minute, I was eight years before that. <laughs> so the internet has helped a bit to to do some searching. So um, it's mainly a case, believe it or not, of lack of evidence of anybody else right. ever having been yeah. out. Yeah. And I've searched and searched and searched over the years. And, um, and I, of course, have you know the documentation of having worked for a city fire department, so it was all there. Um, but now I realize why, is that the fire service is, is such a different environment um, that even today you can, well, Ed would know even better than I, because you're so much more in touch, but, um, there just aren't that many out male firefighters. It, uh, right. I would venture a guess that it's a lot easier to be a lesbian and be out in the fire service than it is to be male. Um, much, much like, like, it like it is in law is enforcement. Yeah. Law enforcement, military, <laughs> any other male dominated, um, environment.
0: Right. Now you mentioned it's been what three decades or so before you since mm-hmm. you last worked for the fire department. What motivated you to write the memoir this this year or this last well year?
1: the day that I was leaving the fire department uh I said to my lieutenant, a man that I, I like very much, um, I said, I will write a book about this someday. <laughs> and he laughed. And I said, and I'm gonna call it Alarm in the Firehouse. So I actually came up with that title 35 years ago when I was leaving the department. Um, And that was before my last fire. So one of the things I I talk about in the book is that um, I knew this would be my last shift and we would get off at seven in the morning. But before 6 a.m. in the morning, a call came in. And we were all called downtown to a fire. And so I I had one hour left in my shift. So I turned to my captain and jokingly said, I don't really have to do this do <laughs> I have one hour left. And he knew I was joking. Um, but it turned out to be one of the largest fires Key West had had in a long time. And, um, and both my captain and I ended up getting injured during that fire. We spent hours there, uh, ended up in the hospital. Hmm. And there was a lot of talk afterwards that um, part of the reason that we were Injured may have been that the other men refused to replace us in the position that we were in. I won't go into all the details, but it was a very dangerous spot and we had to remain where we were until somebody relieved us. And they didn't relieve us for a very long period of time and we both ended up in the hospital. My captain had a heart attack. Oh gosh. Uh, I had smoke inhalation, heat exhaustion, and and all that. So um, I decided even then, that I had to somehow document this. Mm -hmm. At some point I would write this book. Now, life got busy, you know, the HIV epidemic was really getting out of control. I had um, decided I would go into nursing after the fire department and my life became very, very busy for the next number of years. But I'd had so many notes from those years that I'd kept and all these photographs um, that I decided as I approach retirement from my nursing profession, now's the time to write this book. Things have not really changed all that much. And I need to get this story out there. One thing that I think is important is I think it's important for LGBTQ folks to tell their own story. Mm-hmm. That I was afraid that, you know, if I kick off from a heart attack or stroke one of these days, if someone else told my story, it could either be diminished or distorted, uh, maybe blown out of proportion to make it much sexier, you know, oh, it's gay firemen. And I wouldn't want that. I wanted the real story to be told um, and from uh, somebody who actually lived through it. Right. And I think I didn't want it lost. Um, I think that it's important that we know our history and all the different aspects of, of our history as LGBTQ folks. So. Uh, So I put my my nose to the grindstone about two years ago and started going down to Key West and doing some interviews and gathering some more documentation uh, to make sure that my memory wasn't, you know, distorted. And then Mm -hmm. I had all my dates. um, But that was helpful because then I was able to interview some of the guys that I worked with, the good guys, of course, and um, and the chief who's still alive and they're all retired, but uh, he's still alive and hear their stories and their perspective on what it was like to have me in the department for those years. Yeah.
0: Was it cathartic for you? But...
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and I think um, both of you could understand this traumatic. The, mm-hmm. the, um, I've had a career since in which I've published many, many things, research articles, policy papers, and other kinds of things. This was the first time I had to write something personal Mm -hmm. and relive all of those experiences. And they were traumatic the first time around. Um, Thinking back on them and now really having a perspective of how dangerous some of that was, um, was really traumatizing. It was difficult, but it was also cathartic. It was also very good to have um, a couple of my lieutenants write and say, I read your book. Um, You know, I thought you were brave for having done what you did in the first place and staying in the department because you were a good fireman, but even more so for having written the book. And one of them very much appreciated how I responded to all of the abuse and the assaults because I, I uh, I didn't show aggression back. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know to use a a fire term um i never believed that fighting fire with fire was a way to do anything i thought if i yell and scream in their face and call them names and try to undermine them i'm no better than they are so i used humor and uh i was very self-depreciating at the time and and but i used humor a lot to diffuse situations and uh that really worked well Mm -hmm. uh It kept them wondering all the time, you know, what we don't know what Kevin's going to say. But the one thing they knew I wasn't going to do is I wasn't going to throw a punch. And um, the one thing I regret is I didn't report all the abuse at the time. And I think you might well understand that it wouldn't have made any difference in 1981 to go to an official and say, you know, they're calling me faggot. They're doing this. They're right tying my equipment so I can't respond to a fire and to doing all these kinds of things. Um, one of my great disappointments, and I think a point of the book that means a lot today uh, refers back to what Ed said a little bit earlier about the higher-ups. My captain for the first two years saw all this happening. He saw me being pushed up against the wall and threatened, and never once did he intervene. Mm. Never once did he suggest this should not happen. Um, and the men were never penalized in any way. Um, and, and that's a shame. Um, I, I felt badly enough that some of the firemen were bystanders who did not do anything when they probably should have spoken up too. But, but really the officers and the, the chief and the, uh, the assistant chief had a responsibility right. that they did not. Um, And I make a good point about that in the book, that they had a responsibility and they did not follow through on that responsibility. And in that way, uh, they let me down. Sure. Um, And that needs to change. I think that's something that, uh, as you said, in in San Francisco, someone needs to stand up and and make a point here that this is wrong.
0: Well, we have just a couple of minutes left. Ed, you run an international organization that is designed to do... A lot of what Kevin is suggesting to standing up and being an ally and to provide support. Tell us about the organization and where people can go to learn more about it.
2: The organization is the International International EMS and Firefighters Pride Alliance. And the best way to learn more about us is to go online to www.iefpa.org. That's the International EMS and Firefighters Pride Alliance. We're working right now. We're trying to put a package together to start being a little bit more um, like Out to Protect. Um, Out to Protect offers a lot of LGBT uh, awareness training for law enforcement. And it's time that that training be introduced into the fire service and the emergency medical services. So that's something that 2022 is gonna be our year to start putting that together. Um, we're inspired by the work that Out to Protect does, and you're going to learn a lot more about Out to Protect and the work that they do to help law enforcement.
0: Well, thank you um, very much for I'm sure,
2: that. I'm sure Greg will tell you a little bit more about that. But um, the other than other than the IFPA, there's Fireflag EMS in New York. Uh, Fire Flag was born out of P Flag. P Flag is parents helping. Uh, young LGBT folks find their way. Firefly EMS was founded for the same reason, to help EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters within the FDNY uh, come out and know that there is support there for them.
0: Great. Well, we'll put those links on our own website at OutbeatNews.com. Just go to the top of the page and click show notes, and you can check out uh, Ed's organization. Kevin, where can people go to find the book?
1: They can find the book uh, most easily right now on Amazon and Amazon Books. Just look for "Alarm in the Firehouse." It's in uh, Kindle eBook format or as a paperback, and it is now available through Ingram Publishing and Distributing to bookstores and libraries.
0: Terrific, excellent.
1: So, uh, I much appreciate uh, being able to to talk about it a bit.
0: Well, and I appreciate you being on. We've been talking with Kevin Mallison and Ed Sanatori, two out gay firefighters, heroes in America and heroes in the profession. So thank you both for being on with us.
1: Thank you so much, Greg. Thanks, Ted.
0: And that wraps up our hour. Tune in next Sunday night for an Outbeat Extra that happens at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us
1: you broken down and tired of living life on the merry go round And you can't find a fighter by so
0: support for Outbeat Radio on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County, with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at RockyAndRosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCB FM Park and KRCG FM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.